So hello and welcome to Vista Talks, interesting discussions with interesting people from all around the world. I'm your host for today, Simon Hodgkins, and I'm delighted to be joined by Valerie Brown. Uh, Val is global business brand and partnership strategist in entertainment, hospitality, lifestyle and nonprofit. Um, she's the CEO of the Val Brown Group and uh, where they work with many leading CEOs and CMOs. Uh, entrepreneurs, business owners, to drive company growth uh, through ultimately their brand strategy. Uh, Val has helped many brands, and you'll probably know some of these brands, the Hard Rock Cafe, City Winery, Nashville Country Music Hall of Fame, MTV, and many others I'm sure we could mention. Uh, Val's creative vision and strategic acumen are highly appreciated not only by the startup uh, community, but also by very established companies and legacy brands. So Val, you're very welcome to the show. It's great Thanks to have you here. Me. Thanks very much, Val, it's great to see you. Let's move on. There's a lot of areas I'd like to discuss today, okay? So let, let's start. I'd give you a little bit of an introduction there, but could you, for our audience, could you tell us a little bit about yourself how you got into working in this global brand strategy area uh, and how you got into this industry. Maybe that'd be a good place to start. Uh, thank you. Yes, I'd love to. I, uh, and you made me stop and think with this question. You sent, you sent me a little question beforehand. And, um, you know, it's funny, like I'm, I pride myself on being a good strategist for my clients, but I was totally not a strategist in terms of like starting my career. And I, I had grown up kind of working in the arts quite a bit or studying, you know, the arts quite a bit. And uh, I majored in French at a university um, and uh, which my father was not pleased about. And when I got out, I, I got a job as um, uh, the assistant to a marketing and events director at a very she-she nightclub in New York. And the Brazilian owner didn't speak English, so that was French was the lingua franca. And uh, the general manager there, you know, and I had some, I actually had some event experience because I'd been a waitress while I was in uni. And uh, and that general manager left, and I happened to walk into the Hard Rock very late one night because uh, it was still open with my boyfriend, and that general manager had moved there. And he said, uh, Isaac Tigret, the founder of the Hard Rock, is looking for a new marketing manager. I think they called it PR manager then. And because uh, it was a very publicity driven brand and he wanted to open in Paris next. And so again, my French got me my job. So dad, <laughs> it all worked out. And the Hard Rock just had two locations when I started London and, and um, New York and actually LA as well. The two founders had split territory. And uh, I had worked for a record label um, while I was in college or in between, um, I took a little time off. And so I had a lot of the pieces, but that job kind of put them all together and, you know, underpinned by a great love of rock and roll. And, and I think also I've been always kind of outward looking, you know, in terms of internationalism and, uh, you know, I love to travel and I took a school trip to France when I was in high school and, you know, loved the language. And so I think that was what made me, in, you know, interested in the, in the development, the growth part of the, of the business. Well, that's, that's lovely. And it's so often that we hear 
how that language education mm. led into something right and it gave you that opportunity that without the language learning it wouldn't have been afforded to you and yeah. it's a bit of fate it's a bit of you know well, it just comes together doesn't it and but it's yeah. amazing how often people do share with us how it kind of helped them find yeah. their find their <laughs> first start or their path so thanks for sharing that that background and um i'd like to maybe tease out a little bit then Mm -hmm. Because you've mentioned the Hard Rock Cafe, and it's, that's a globally recognized name. And I also read out when I was introducing you at the top, just MTV, which you know was a huge juggernaut of a, a global success. Could you maybe give us a little bit of understanding when it says when you work with those organizations, what's the kind of work? What exactly are you working on with brands like the Hard Rock Cafe or MTV or any others that you, you care to share with us? Well, I think, you know, with Hard Rock, when I started, uh, it wasn't a global brand. It was certainly had a reputation in uh, the UK. And I don't know how, I mean, I think we knew about it already in the, in the, in New York, at least when the Hard Rock opened in New York, I came in two years after, but it didn't have a global reputation. And I think I went in and the brand had grown very organically. You know, Isaac was a kind of hippie rocker and um, with Eastern religion leanings. And uh, it had grown organically through his vision. But I think when I went on, I tried to kind of analyze and codify like what it is that had been happening and uh, looking at the brand more and what that represented. And, you know, then everybody, I mean, people didn't say the word brand that often. It was logo, logo, logo. And of course the Hard Rock was famous for the ubiquity of his logo, which we actively, you know, pursued. And so that was kind of the first part of it and just kind of setting in stone and um, getting a steady uh, supply of how we got our publicity, which is basically, um, event-driven and um, cause-related, you know, and philanthropy-driven. And um, MTV was a good partner for us in all of that. I later did another project with them, but MTV had only been around for a couple of years as well, in, you know, at all. And their offices were down the street from us on 57th Street in Manhattan. And so we kind of became like the company canteen and certainly for events. Every celebrity event we threw, they came and covered with a news crew, which they don't do anymore. But, and so it was really helpful for us. And we had, you know, big post-show, uh, post-concert parties and really, I mean, an absolute who's who of like current for the time. And, you know, they weren't legacy yet, but rock and roll acts from the sixties. And that's kind of how we made our bread and butter, but we really did have a purpose-driven mission even that early on. And that was sometimes how we got celebrities to work with us because they often had it as well and they wanted to burnish their images. And, but then, you know, we went into growth mode, you know, and uh, we opened first in, you know, US markets. And then we, after about five years, maybe even less of US development, we started international markets. We had the London location, which of course made it easier um, than managing everything out of New York. But, um, you know, and then it became looking at, you know, city selection, site selection, uh, you know, and understanding really like marketing was different in every country. It was, you know, New York, a lot of marketing in the US is local because it's a huge market. 
And uh, a lot of the media just in London at the time, and this was before digital media, um, was national. So you had to have a really big story or create a really big promotion for BBC radio in order for it to be picked up. It was a much lower bar in the US. But I think from like the beginning of the development in the US and before, we were very interested in creating a global image. So a lot of our decisions were made um, on, you know, how much coverage can this garner us? And we worked again with MTV a lot because they would do major global broadcasts. I mean, it started with Live Aid actually before I was with uh, Hard Rock and where Hard Rock would build the green room and have our wallpaper or our logo at that time probably and get national, uh, international as well coverage. And, you know, there weren't so many media outlets to compete with back then you know, and uh, and it was great for our trademark protection as well, because we had a lot of problems with counterfeiting on hard rock, both in terms of uh, actual physical hard rocks and also obviously the t-shirts. And then later, actually after I had left the hard rock, um, I was working with Robert Earl um, from Planet Hollywood who wanted to develop a music concept. And he brought me in to work with MTV on developing that concept. And it was uh, originally slated to be in the building that MTV is now in, in the old Paramount Theater where Frank Sinatra had cues of screaming girls down the street and, uh, and a venue. Uh, we ended up opening up in London. So uh, I've worked with MTV on and off, you know, for many years. Uh, they've been an important partner in a lot of the businesses. And more recent projects have been, um, and I, I, I've been very interested in brand extensions and uh, brand partnerships and uh, as a way for growth and as a way for brands to um, uh, reach new audiences, you know, drive revenue, um, oftentimes enhance the value of their brand as well. And, uh, we worked with uh, the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum, which is a super iconic uh, uh, organization in Nashville. And you know that market has gotten really hot over the last 15 years and maybe longer than that now. And we just saw an opportunity to grow beyond the country demographic because uh, the biggest radio markets for country, I mean, the biggest, Los Angeles was the biggest country radio market, ironically, and New York was a huge country radio market. And we also saw that subscriptions for Southern Living, Ma Living Magazine were throughout the country. And so we saw an opportunity to reach this audience and we were gonna do it primarily through um, product and licensing and starting. So we went in and did a strategy for that. And, uh, most recently, I did another strategy for uh, uh, an on and off client of mine, City Winery, which is a fabulous purpose-driven uh, working urban winery, entertainment space and uh, live music venue. And uh, on, first of all, doing kind of grassroots brand work on going back and looking, they have a great brand, but going back and really creating a brand platform, like looking at their, their mission, for where they stand now. And because a lot of people tweaked their missions, you know, over the last two years, I think, which we can talk about. And also doing a kind of a style, a look and feel and extension um, project for them. So 
It's varied. Really, every area of brand I, I've worked in, we've worked in. Wow, uh, that's incredible. And uh, it's uh, there's a few things maybe just to highlight there that really stuck with me and resonated with me. And number one was how very much the cause, the mission, um, the sort of nonprofit, the CSR, as we call it today, aspects mm -hmm. played such a part in it back then, obviously. Um, and I think that's a very interesting uh, element to, to sort of to think about, because today, a lot of global organizations and global communications, it's very much a core part of what they do. Uh, whereas I suppose back then in sort of some of the time that you were talking about in the early days of growing that brand, it's it, it's very interesting to see how that was very early, I suppose, in terms of maybe a lot of international brands weren't vocal mm -hmm. in that area or hadn't even considered it as part of their global communication strategy. So that's the first thing that resonated with me. And then I suppose the other thing was the partnership approach where whether it was a formal partnership or just because you're in the next block. Yeah. Um, it it kind of how it leveraged and you worked with that international partner and it kind of kind of benefited both sides. And of course, throughout all that, I find it fascinating. I didn't know that LA had the largest uh, country music sort of following. I wouldn't have predicted that. I don't think many of our audience would have predicted that either. But it just goes to show that when you're communicating, it's, it's about knowing your audience, isn't it? And making sure that you're communicating the right messages to the right people and that it's understood. And you've mentioned that a few times in terms of language, whether you're opening in New York, or whether you're in London or whether you're in Paris, getting that language and that communication right to that target audience and understanding where your target audience is and how you're going to reach them through that brand activation or that corporate mm -hmm. communication. So thanks so much for sharing that, Val. There's some great insight into that. And I know many people will know a lot of those brands and it's, it's incredible to see how that, that sort of journey begun. So as a, as a brand expert, the next thing I'd like to maybe touch on is, are there any brands, uh, even outside of the sphere that you're working in, where you would sort of highlight and say, look, I think these brands are really getting it right at the moment. And if there are, what, what are the strategic approaches that you see global brands maybe deploying at the moment? Like what's really working when you look out as a corporate citizen or a global citizen of the world? Mm -hmm. what, do, what do you look at? What, what sort of influences yeah. you? Um, well, I think I always have on both my corporate and my consumer hats. I, you know, I can step in and out of one, but I like to consider them both. Uh, because the more I put on my consumer hat, the more I understand the needs of the consumer, you know, for the brand that I may be, you know, advocating for. And um, first of all, I, I just wanted to say, um, you know, I'm really lucky that I could, you know, bring to or enhance um, some of the purpose and actually sustainable actions even in the 1980s um, for those brands. And, um, and, and so that really leads into now where, I mean, I'm mostly interested in brands, not, you know, not that I've done, haven't done projects with people that aren't like, you know, uh, exceedingly purpose and sustainability um, motivated, but those are the brands that I really look like now and that I like, uh, like now and that I, I like to call out. I mean, I love, I mean, as a consumer, I adore the brand Oatly 
it's I'm mostly plant-based. It's the milkiest milk out there, I have to say. But their advertising was, you know, they started as a challenger brand and they had that challenger voice. They were provocative, they were funny, they got into a little trouble, you know, with the ASA. So and um and though they're a major player now, actually, they're in 20 markets, they still have that voice actually. And I think a really talented in-house creative team who keeps, you know, inventing new uh new provocative um campaigns but um you know i look at you know someone like unilever and i i haven't you know i'm not saying i've done a deep dive on every product and manufacturing and all of that but you know they've made a real commitment i think you know about 50 percent of their brands now have big you know that both their positioning and then the actions that they're taking are purpose or sustainability driven um, you know, it kind of started with Unilever changing their visual identity, which is a really smart change where that logo now has, you know, flowers and, you know, greenery in it. It's wonderful. Um, I think, you know, Ikea is doing, you know, they've always been somewhat interested in, in sustainable issues, but, you know, they've made a commitment to uh, hire 200,000 uh, disadvantaged people around the world whether those are refugees or, you know, lower income people. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's a wonderful commitment for an organization. And, you know, everyone's doing, it. I mean, the high street shops have, you know, clothing shops have, and retail brands have a lot of challenges. I mean, their, their production is difficult. It's, it's wasteful. Um, some of that can be reduced, but, there's always been a lot of innovation in fashion. They have to innovate every six months, don't they, for a new collection? But they've really been applying that, not across the board, but they've been applying that in creative ways to, you know, work with those issues. And, you know, everything from retailers like in, in Paris, Galerie Lafayette has a restore. I'm not sure the name of it, but, you know, a lot of brands, H&M is doing a lot, um, Zara, um, you know, they have to be careful of really walking their talk, you know, and not greenwashing because consumers will call them out on it, you know, but, um, you know, those are the brands that I'm interested in. And, you know, it's not just that it's the right thing to do. It's not just that it looks good and burnishes your image, you know, consumers, you know, it's an economic driver. It's a decision driver for consumers. Consumers would prefer if price notwithstanding, to buy brands that are they're doing good things, it makes people feel good about themselves. Yeah, so 100%. Yeah, 100%. And you, you've mentioned there, some interesting brands that maybe weren't global initially was more challenger brands mm -hmm. um, that over time have become global brands in, in, you know, many international markets. Uh, and you've also mentioned some very well established giants, uh, in particularly in, in retail products, and how that sustainability has become such a critical component, and rightly so. But, um, you know, consumers are voting with their dollars, aren't they? Um, they're, they're, yeah. they're voting with their pockets. So mm -hmm. uh, people, I think, yes, of course, there are disadvantaged groups. There are people where price uh, and, and food, unfortunately, is a real challenge. Um, but for the, the, the consumers that a lot of these companies are, are targeting, um, sustainability it's such a core fundamental that 
it's good, but the, there's a lot more work to do, I think, still. Absolutely. Uh, it's a great, it's a great start. Um, yeah. So I wanted to maybe, if I can, just think a little bit as well, because we've mentioned quite a few brands so far, but you said something earlier, Val, that really uh, I wanted to pick you up on and ask you a bit more about. You were talking about uh, bands and legacy bands and mu legacy music, but I wanted to extend that, if I can, into legacy brands. And I'm interested in really your view on how maybe legacy brands can focus on transforming their business, um, you know, whether that's through international markets or how you sort of mm -hmm. reposition, uh, mm -hmm. breathe new life, adapt and grow as maybe a, a legacy brand that's moving into this new sort of way that we live and work today globally. Yeah. Thoughts on that? Well, I mean, in the sector that I operate in, or the sectors, entertainment, hospitality, lifestyle. I, um, one project that was, I mean, you know, I've, I've been very lucky. I love music and I've worked around music most of my career. So a lot of my work has been fun, <laughs> you know, but um, I'm a huge Beatles fan and I approached the Cavern Club in Liverpool some years ago now. And which, uh, if you don't know, was famous for the Beatles having played over 200 shows there at the beginning of their career. And Liverpool is a Beatles town. There, you know, is huge Beatles tourism. There's football tourism also. Um, uh, but I approached them and I said, you have an amazing brand, you know, um, can I help you develop it, you know, internationally? And actually I had seen a little note in the Guardian two years before that and sent a note to the Cavern where he said, oh yeah, we think about growing sometimes. And I sent a note and two years later it came back. So agencies in terms of, you know, business development, you never know when this is going to come back to you. But, um, and so, you know, I did an international development strategy for them and licensing strategy. And, uh, you know, the thing is you have to be, when you, when you have a legacy brand, you have to be realistic about it. You know, you have to see, is there any there there, you know? Uh, is there brand loyalty? Is there brand equity? You know, how many people still know about this brand? And so how beloved is it, you know? And, uh, you know, we went back in the cavern, there were some absolute, you know, slam dunks, the association to the Beatles, a beloved and evergreen band and brand um, still appeals to, you know, multi-generations. And I don't think that will ever stop, to be honest. And they've done an excellent job at protecting and preserving and growing um, that brand and business um, through their amazing creativity. Um, but so we looked at that and the challenge that, that we saw was that uh, the Beatles are happy for people to use their name in Liverpool quite kindly. Uh, you know, without uh, the rights to do so. And, but you can't, and rightly so, do that outside of that market. So we had to expand the narrative of that brand. Um, first of all, beyond the Beatles. And, um, and also because, you know, it posted many of the greats of the 60s bands, you know, from the Stones and the Kinks and, you know, Elton and Queen and, 
oasis and Arctic monkeys, you know, and uh, they had been using a uh, kind of little tagline, uh, you know, a foot in the past, a hand in the future. And so we, I really lit upon that, that that needs to be part of our positioning now, because we had to make the brand relevant to today's audience. And they did have a commitment to, to launching new talent. Um, so, you know, that's where that was the direction I saw that was right for that brand. And I think, you know, it's also important, depending on what size business you're working at. I work a lot in the medium size enterprise um, area. And you have to have, um, you have to be willing to make some investment, you know, to relaunch it. Your marketing costs are going to be way above what you would, you know, normally have to. And I think, um, and I think we get into it maybe in a later question, but I think um, partnerships are a great way as well to kind of launch quickly and piggyback in effect sometimes on other brands. But Well, let, let's talk about that then yeah. if we can, because I mean, it's very interesting, like the Cavern Club to me, I would resonate with the Beatles. But then as you start to talk about all the other people that have played there, launched their careers there, and that sort of hand in the future approach to it, it mm -hmm. does reposition it automatically, doesn't it, in, in yeah. people's minds that says, well, actually, we're very much part of this machine that mm -hmm. uncovers talent and shares new talent with the world. So so let's let's get into that a little bit. So in terms of the insights then that you could potentially share with us today about increasing that brand value, increasing that brand reach, either for legacy or for new brands. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it that partnership that you just referenced or is, well, it, is it, there are lots of different insights that you need to, to play into here? Yeah, um, I think a lot of the insights come in the planning stages, you know, in the research stages, in, um, you know, you have to see, do you need investment, you know, do you have what it takes to, to take this bigger? And then also you have to do, you know, you have to launch your marketing a little bit, you know, before you start reaching out for partners. But um, I would say that uh, a brand that maybe is not legacy, legacy but is a bit moribund um, uh, can look to partnerships as well. And if you look at certain brands like um, Crocs, now that may be, better known in America, but you know, it was a very big brand. I don't know if it was 20 years ago or 25 years ago. They're amazingly comfortable. I wear them at home and um, uh, they were a red hot thing. They had retail shops, you know, in throughout New York and, um, and eventually those shops closed like the, the fad passed as it were. And, you know, after a while of, you know, they had a core audience and they had a medical audience as well. Same thing with Birkenstocks actually, right? They have people who work in hospitals, healthcare workers. Um, they started partnering with people and they have totally rejuvenated their brand and they've made it cool again. It had dropped out of the, the cool category. And actually Birkenstock has done that uh, as well, not to as big an extent, but, um, and that's just been very clever. It's not unlike how Hard Rock kind of piggybacked on celebrities. You know, this is you're getting brand equity, you know, is rubbing off on you. Brand reputation is rubbing off on you by association with these brands. And so, um, you know, I've been really hot on that lately. It's just interesting, too. It's fun. A lot of the associations are totally unexpected and they're funny and, you know, and uh, it's also opened them up to, up to new demographics. If Crocs was 
a little bit with an older demographic, you know, it's been made younger by some of the partnerships that they've done, you know, with DJs and artists and talent and other brands. And Lego has done great things with partnerships. I think they just did something with Adidas and, um, you know, it's funny speaking to Beatles earlier, Yellow, the Yellow Submarine brand, which has a little bit more malleability than working with the Beatles brand has done a lot of great partnerships as well. And so, you know, it's a highly creative side of the business. It's fun. It can, you know, it can revive your brand. It can grow even into um, licensing at some point. I mean, it is a licensing deal per se, but once you've strengthened your brand and depending on your strategy, you can become, you know, a huge player at mass market and licensing potentially. So, yeah. And I think you, you mentioned Adidas or Adidas, the, the brand. Uh, they're very involved in high-end fashion now. I saw some mm. very interesting collaborations only in the last week at the time of recording this, uh, which was a very uh, unusual partnership for me to, to oh, yeah. see. Fashion went, is wow, the best that, at this. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it really works. And um, you're right, because it sort of brings in a new audience, doesn't it? It breathes a new life into it. And that partnership approach certainly does inc increase the brand reach. Mm -hmm. uh, and both parties typically benefit from it and you mentioned as well celebrity and of course the right celebrity assuming they haven't done anything wrong in the public eye or they don't they don't take a misstep which happens from time to time um but celebrity plays a big part in that doesn't it and you see more and more celebrities taking a part in design and creative endeavors because of you know their musical background maybe if they're a, a musical a celebrity it's a very creative endeavor yeah. anyway so yeah yeah. yeah, I think also, um, I think that industry had to pivot because with the advent of digital music and the Spotify's of this world, um, artists were making a lot less money and they were making more, you know, most of their money was coming from touring, which is a tough business to do all the time. And so they, their managers or the artists themselves, I guess, wanted to find new ways to drive revenue and this made perfect sense and absolutely yes they're creative souls so absolutely so look as we we're coming towards the end of our discussion here but i do want to squeeze a couple of extra points in if i can val and just ask you a couple of other things so we're obviously hopefully coming through the tail end of a, a global pandemic as well um, and i just want to ask you about the importance of branding during the last say two years uh, and have you seen big changes in strategy in the sort of clientele that you work with? Uh, has there been any good examples of really good brand execution during a very challenging time? Like tours and, uh, you know, international music venues pretty much shut in oh, yeah. locations. So it was, I imagine, quite a huge challenge to reposition, refigure out where do you go from here? But just, you know, in general, over the last couple of years, have you seen any major shifts or anything that you think has been a particularly good brand execution? Um, I don't know if I have specific brands in mind right. for that. I, right. It was just an industry observation in general that, um, you know, it's not that sustainability was not an issue before the pandemic, but I think, first of all, brands, in terms of repositioning, brands became more human. Right. They were hurting, too. They were talking to their customers who were here hurting also. 
So it was a much more compassionate voice. And I think that, um, I think that was helpful to a lot of brands, especially brands that maybe don't have a human voice most of the time, whether that's banking or, you know, kind of the very serious industries. And I think it humanized everyone. Um, I think as well, consumers, you know, we're adjusting how they feel about life really, you know, uh, and uh, consumption and how they worked and going to the office every day and, you know, and uh, I, so I think consumers demanded even more change. And I, just for me personally, um, you know, I mean, we, we were ordering so much on Amazon, like the boxes and the waste, you know, was, we were just, and the takeout containers from the deliveries. And we were just faced with all of this garbage that we were creating. And, you know, and I think consumers demanded more in terms of packaging and, and new ways to do business. And certainly in my industry, I mean, you know, from my client city winery to across the boards, when I think of New York actually, which was the worst hit initially in the pandemic, you know, um, everybody changed, you know, you had to change your business model. You had to turn on a dime and, you know, obviously doing deliveries, but, you know, picking up orders outside of the thing. Retail did that as well. So, you know, I, I, there are too many brands to give kudos to one, to be honest. You know, it really was a change. And I just hope, and I think a lot of brands have maintained that positioning a little bit, you know, um, we'll see if it continues, but I think it was, you know, from that standpoint only, it was positive. Um, you know, it was, so much suffering for so many families and um, we have to not lose sight of that. But um, uh, like many difficult things in life and in the world, we learned from it, absolutely. Yeah, and, no, I appreciate that. And you, you know, New York, I think everybody knows how serious New York took a hit. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a very challenging time for lots of places around the world. And New York certainly, I think was, um, was definitely one of those mm -hmm. unfortunate hotspots. Um, and you're right. I mean, some businesses didn't survive. Some businesses had to completely reorchestrate mm -hmm. how they positioned themselves, how they actually made money. It was a complete change in business approach. Uh, so thank you very much indeed for sharing that. And it's been, it's been a fascinating discussion to talk about everything from legacy brands to, you know, the sustainability that we've touched on today. And also some insight into the music uh, background of some of your, your large clients uh, and that their sort of creative visions and partnership approaches and how it works. But I don't want to wrap up without giving you an opportunity maybe to, to share with us anything that we haven't mentioned today, Val, or is there any other topic that you'd like to maybe share with us that you think may be of value to our audience? Uh, I mean, global peace. <laughs> I suppose at the, at the time of recording this, we we're I know exactly. Yeah, global backdrop yeah. is one of conflict in Europe again, which is yeah. very sad. Uh, but global peace, I think, is is great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the standard beauty contest question that you know answer that people are asked. But you know, that's top of mind for me today. And um, but I think also just and it's it's what we've been talking about. But I think as both consumers and uh, business people, we do need to hold uh, clients and companies that we use um, feet to the flame a little bit 
in uh, maintaining authenticity, right? And in, you know, they've set out these missions and it's not okay to just come out and say, we're doing this and we're doing that. Like we have, you know, keep alert, <laughs> keep alert, see what they're doing, you know, demand more transparency, which was also a fabulous uh, result of, um, of, I think the pandemic and just the, uh, the power that consumers have now that they did not have 15 or 20 years ago, certainly. So use that power. Um, I'll just finish with yeah, that. Yeah, with, with great power comes great responsibility. Exactly, that, exactly, yeah. Off? Cancel culture can get a little bit OTT sometimes. So be responsible yeah. and compassionate. Yeah. Well, look, I, I think there's some excellent points to end on. And thank you very much indeed for, for adding those. It's been an absolute pleasure to spend some time with you today, Mel. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Well, look, that's the end of today's show with Valerie Brown. Uh, please make sure to tune in again to uh, see and or listen to the next Vista Talk show, where we'll be discussing more interesting topics with interesting people. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.